My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this gay. Episode 7, The Indestructible Collective Consciousness of Queers. After completing my contract at Radio Free Europe in Munich, Germany, I took an under-the-table job for a cable TV station and finally realized my long-held dream of moving to Berlin. 1995 was a magical year in Berlin. That summer, Christo and Jean-Claude wrapped the Reichstag in a shiny metal fabric only blocks from my apartment. It was truly one of the most breathtaking art exhibits of all time. A 24-hour festival sprung up in front of the Reichstag in der Platz der Republik. Berliners danced to the music of street musicians, enjoyed mime troops, street performers, and marveled at the magnificent beauty of Christo's art installation. The Reichstag had remained a bombed-out shell since the end of World War II. Until the reunification of Germany, it had been in a sort of no-man's land between East and West Berlin. That autumn, after Christo's wrapping of the Reichstag was over, it was finally to be renovated and become the new capital of a unified, free Germany. Germans were the proud victors of a hard-won, lifelong struggle against communism, and it felt like the whole world was coming to join us in the celebration. Our weekends were spent dancing all night till noon at Ewerk, the infamous club that was the birthplace of Eurotechno and Eurotrance music. Berlin was where I experienced my crazy youthful party days, albeit a bit late in life. I would take a roofie, Rehypnol, around 6pm, set the alarm for 2.30am, call my friend Alistair to make sure he was awake, eat a quick breakfast, pop my first ecstasy of the night, hop on my bike and pedal to Ewerk to meet Alistair at 4. We joked that only teenies and touris, teenagers and tourists, went to Ewerk before 4am. Conveniently, most of the straight girls were also in bed by then, leaving their boyfriends for us. The girls' bathroom was where you went to do drugs, the boys' bathroom was where you went to have sex, and the dance floor was where we danced our young souls into oblivion. For Love Parade that summer, 1.2 million techno music lovers converged on Berlin for the biggest rave and music festival in the history of the world. The music was so loud, birds were having heart attacks and falling dead out of trees as we danced around the victory column in Berlin's Tiergarten. To call Berlin a gay-friendly city would be a huge understatement. That summer, Berliners wanted everyone to know they were proudly reclaiming their place as the world capital of tolerance and hedonistic pleasure. A thriving gay community is an integral part of how Berliners proudly define themselves. During the Christopher Street Day celebration, Berlin's Gay Pride, the straight community came out in huge numbers to show their support for the queer community and did so in some very surprising ways. They lit tens of thousands of tea candles and lined all the walkways in the Tiergarten where gay men notoriously cruised for sex at night. It was not only visually beautiful, but a charming and somewhat tongue-in-cheek display of support that was so uniquely Berlin, I can't imagine it happening anywhere else on earth. My friend Alistair Appleton invited me to join him on the Ewerk float during the Gay Pride Parade. The expansive avenues in Berlin allow room for massive crowds, and they were packed that year for Pride. As the parade went past the Reichstag and approached the Brandenburg Gate, the joyous crowd reached a deafening roar. For our entire lives, the Brandenburg Gate had been the symbol of the Iron Curtain dividing Berlin and the world in half. 
But Germany was divided no more, and we had earned this celebration. The Aussies, our nickname for the former East Germans, had come out in their thousands to celebrate gay pride. As our float reached the Brandenburg Gate, the joyous cheers were so deafening we couldn't even hear each other. We could barely see each other through our own tears of joy. Alistair and I just hugged as the float went through the Brandenburg Gate. But when we came out on the other side into former East Berlin, we were greeted by throngs of Aussies thunderously screaming with joy, tears also streaming down their faces, knowing that only months before they could have been arrested and imprisoned for celebrating gay pride. That summer was one of the happiest times of my life, and I wanted nothing more than to remain in Berlin forever. I had been offered multiple jobs in Berlin, but it was proving impossible to get a work permit, and eventually I came to the realization that if I wanted a career, if I wanted a future, I had to go back to America. There were simply no other options available to me. I had absolutely zero desire to return to the country of my birth. To me, at that point, America had become a hateful, homophobic hellhole good for only two things, beach vacations and buying blue jeans. Reluctantly, as the best summer of my life drew to a close, I had to face my unavoidable move to New York and made arrangements to move the first week of 1996. Three weeks before my scheduled departure, I was diagnosed with HIV. At that stage, HIV was still a death sentence. If I was lucky, I figured I might have five good years and wanted to be closer to my mom in America, so I decided to go ahead with my plans. My wonderful doctor in Berlin, Heiko Jessen, was, and still is, a renowned HIV specialist. He knew Dr. Gabriel Torres, who, under the direction of Dr. David Ho in New York, was one of the five doctors conducting a study of a new and very promising triple combination therapy, including what they called an antiretroviral medication. Dr. Ho would go on to be named Time Magazine's Person of the Year for this study. Dr. Torres wasn't taking patients at that time. None of the five doctors working with Dr. Ho were, but somehow my doctor, Heiko, got me in. So I was off to New York City. The triple combination therapy was damn hard to take. One of the medications was a thick mint and caramel flavored liquid, the most god-awful flavor combination ever devised by man. The only way I could keep from throwing it up was if I immediately chased it with a tall glass of chocolate milk to cut the taste. This pleasant experience was repeated three times daily. To this day, the mere sight of chocolate milk makes me gag. Most of that first year, I had to visit the little boy's room every few minutes. I was constantly on the run with the runs. Oftentimes, I had only seconds to find a bathroom. I memorized the location of every public restroom on 8th Avenue from 14th Street to Penn Station. I was miserable. We all were. I couldn't taste my food. I couldn't allow myself to get hungry. If I did, I'd start throwing up again, followed immediately by several hours of total exhaustion. For the first time in my life, I was putting on weight. My hands had started shaking, and that was getting progressively worse. But the side effect that haunts me to this day, I was tired. Oh my god, I was so exhausted all the time. I got so sick and tired of hearing myself complain how tired I was. My first apartment in New York was in Chelsea, the gay ghetto. 
I figured if I was going to go through this thing, I would do it in a place where I wouldn't have to suffer alone. I quickly discovered almost no one in Chelsea had a living room. People mostly use their tiny apartments just for sleeping and sex. Coffee shops are the New Yorker's de facto living rooms. Our local coffee shop was Big Cup, or more fondly known as Gay Care. My first morning in my new apartment, I bought a copy of the New York Times and went to Big Cup to sip coffee, scan the want ads, and plan my day of job searching. No sooner did I sit down, though, than that all-too-familiar stomach groan announced an emergency visit to the bathroom. In that neighborhood and in those days, people just understood. All I had to do was say to the very sexy blonde guy in the front of the line, um, I'm sorry, man, but my meds, and he let me cut to the front of the line and take the next available bathroom. When I returned to my seat, I realized the sexy stranger was at the table across from me. I momentarily wondered what the proper etiquette in this situation was. I doubt Emily Post ever discussed age-related diarrhea. I mean, if we can pick up dates at funerals, the most frequent, pretty much only social event of the gay 90s, this had to be okay, right? I just wanted to say thank you and figured, ah, what the hell? It's not like he didn't understand what was going on. He's probably HIV positive himself. As I turned towards him and started to mouth the words thank you, I saw the man he was sitting with and we both screamed. Oh my God. We jumped up and gave each other a big hug. It was MCM, an old friend from Preston, Idaho, who had grown up across the street from my grandparents. Where did you disappear to, he asked. I heard a rumor you had moved back to Europe, but suddenly you were just gone and nobody heard from you again. God, it's good to see you, though. Yeah, you too, I said. Yeah, sorry about that. I hate the goodbye scene, so I just kind of snuck out of town. Trying to flirt with the sexy blonde guy, I turned and said, That's what I love about being gay. All you have to do is find the local gay hangout, and you're bound to run into some shady fag from your past. Or is it fag from your shady past? We all laughed, and MCM said, Stuart, this is my friend Dave. Yeah, we sort of met. Thanks for helping me out, by the way, I said. No, no problem. We've all been there, Dave answered. Well, that answered that question. He's hot, nice, and HIV positive. Perfect, I thought. MCM and I had lived in Chicago at the same time, and it was there that we became friends. So what the hell are you doing in New York, I asked MCM. Well, I got tired of Chicago and figured I'd give New York a try. How do you two know each other, Sexy Dave asked. MCM used to give blowjobs to football players in Grandpa's backyard in Preston, Idaho, I said. I had actually met MCM at a gay bar in Chicago when I first arrived there to attend Northwestern. Then, much like now, I had gone to a local gay hangout to meet new people, and this guy asked me if I wanted a drink. I immediately recognized his accent and asked him where he was from. Utah, he said. Really? What part, I asked. Northern Utah. Where exactly in northern Utah are you from, I inquired. Well, actually, it's a small town in southern Idaho, but I doubt you've ever heard of it. Just try me, I said. Preston, Idaho, but I went to school at Utah State in Logan. I'm a Merrill, was all I had to say. Back in Preston, Idaho, the town of Napoleon Dynamite fame, across the street from MCM, on my grandma and grandpa's side of the block, were seven houses. Four of them were inhabited by Merrills. Two were inhabited by Johnsons. Grandpa was a Merrill, Grandma was a Johnson. In the seventh house lived Sister Seely, but when her husband died, she married a Merrill. Hey, what can I say? My Mormon polygamous forebears were a very prolific bunch. 
Now, this must have all sounded rather secret society and a bit scary for poor sexy Dave. We tried to explain it to him, but if you didn't grow up there, it's kind of hard to understand. In all honesty, the truth is probably scarier than anything Sexy Dave could have imagined, and we would have been better off just keeping our mouths shut. MCM and I had crossed each other's paths many times in our childhood, but never actually met before Chicago. I remember seeing him across the street when I spent a few weeks each summer at my grandparents. I had also been the key witness in a crime perpetrated by MCM's best friend, Paul. Paul had lost control of his car, ran over Sister Celie's garbage cans, and driven upon her lawn before stopping in some shrubbery. The chief of police who interviewed me at the scene of this hideous crime was in fact MCM's dad. While we were all drinking coffee at Big Cup, acquainting and reacquainting ourselves, an impromptu one-woman show began to play out. A tall, skinny drag queen, clearly suffering from AIDS-related dementia, was the self-appointed star of this wonderful little performance. My generation of gay men has a very high tolerance threshold for dementia. We've seen a lot of it. In spite of that, no, more likely because of that, we also felt comfortable laughing about dementia, albeit with a patronymic warmth, as if demented AIDS victims were merely lovable family members slightly more eccentric than the rest of us. We would let them enjoy their fantasies as long as they were pleasant ones, or we would try to talk them down if they weren't in a good headspace, the whole time making sure they didn't walk out into traffic or hurt themselves in any way. We looked around to see if anyone was tending this queen, and when we saw she was alone, we, the community, just kept an eye on her. This darling diva was holding court at a cocktail party with Dorothy Parker and Tallulah Bankhead at the Algonquin Round Table in the 1920s. She was in heaven, parading back and forth between the tables, flicking her imaginary cigarette holder and entertaining her imaginary guests. After a while, MCM said, Listen, she's just voicing the collective consciousness in the room. As if this were her well-rehearsed cue, she suddenly yelled, All I want is for someone to notice me! Then she stormed out the door, slammed it behind her, and dramatically started parading down 8th Avenue. The three of us roared with laughter. Oh my god, you're exactly right. That's what every gay man in the room is thinking, Sexy Dave said. Someone ran after her, gently grabbed her by the elbow, and brought her back into the coffee shop. We told our new friend John Nash at the next table, and the other people around us, our little secret, and she resumed her one-woman show to an even more receptive audience. Finally, someone popped their head in the coffee shop and said, Come on, Jamie, it's time to go home. And she was gone. I just loved that this guy knew he had left Jamie in a safe place. No words were spoken, no instructions were given, Everyone immediately understood the situation and the role they needed to play and took care of her accordingly. Hell, if America wasn't going to take care of us, we were damn well going to take care of each other. And maybe life in New York wasn't going to be so bad after all. Strolling down 8th Avenue, you would see two gay men walking towards each other suddenly burst into tears and give each other a huge hug. Even if we didn't know them, we'd pat them on the back as we walked by, or even join in the hug, because we all knew what that meant. We had all experienced it ourselves. If you didn't see someone for a few months, that meant they were dead, and you had missed the funeral announcement. So when you saw a friend you hadn't seen for a long time, you just fell into each other's arms crying because you were so thrilled they were still alive. Looking back, though, 
I honestly miss that sense of community, that indestructible collective consciousness of queers, circling the wagons to help each other survive. I'm even sad younger gays will never experience this. It's what defined us. It gave us back our dignity. And it gave us the strength to keep on living. We were all part of the same team. It was like belonging to the biggest, best fraternity on earth. Even if you were a stranger in a strange place, you only had to find the nearest gay cafe, club, or community center, and you could relax knowing you were among friends who would watch out for you. On one of my last visits with my best friend Stevie, I had to fly to St. Louis, but it was a three-hour drive to his hometown, and I couldn't afford a rental car. So I just called the local AIDS charity in St. Louis and asked for help. They arranged a series of volunteers to shuttle me from the airport to Stevie's door and back, complete with a warm sofa so I could get a little sleep and a home-cooked meal in each direction. When I think back, what's truly remarkable, though, is I didn't call them hoping they would be able to help me out. I called them knowing that, of course, these perfect strangers in Missouri would take care of some gay guy they had never met and would never see again who just wanted to visit his best friend dying of AIDS in the Ozarks. This collective queer consciousness didn't exist only in America, though it was needed the most in America. I experienced similar things all over Europe, even in South Africa and Israel. Before my return to America, I decided I needed to take one last European vacation, so I flew to Israel. Armed with my Spartacus, the International Gay Travel Guide, I headed off to Tel Aviv and went straight to a gay cafe, Café Landau, on the corner of Ben-Gurion and Ben-Yehuda Boulevards. When I walked in, I was met by one of the ten hottest men I have ever seen in my life. It turned out he was the cafe's owner and his name was also Ben. When I asked him if he would please recommend a safe, gay-friendly youth hostel, he just abruptly said, no, I can't, but wait here. He walked over to speak with some customers, and a few seconds later, they waved me over. Ben had arranged everything. I couldn't stay in a hostel because I was staying with his friends, and they took turns housing me and toured me all over Israel. Honestly, this is an enormous source of pride for this old man as I sit here writing my story. AIDS, one of the worst plagues in the history of man, descended on the gay community like a grim reaper. And especially in America, when we realized few people were going to help us out, we rolled up our sleeves, circled the wagons, and damn well took care of each other. In the process, we changed the world, creating a life of options, freedom, and acceptance for the LGBTQ community that we could have never imagined. MCM helped me get a job with a couple of catering companies in the West Village. I did my best to keep up my search for a real job while earning a living as a cater waiter. Not that waiting tables isn't real work, it is. And in New York, it can be quite a bit of fun, too. I was lucky I landed pretty good gigs for the most part. During a fashion show at Saks Fifth Avenue, I was bartending and I noticed the crowd had suddenly gone silent. I looked up and in walked America's most hated tyrant, the Queen of Mean, Leona Helmsley. This was a couple of days after her release from prison for tax evasion. Because, as she famously said, only little people pay taxes. I broke the silence and said loudly enough for everyone near me, but not Miss Helmsley to hear, Perhaps, madam, you'd be more comfortable in a smaller space. Then I reached behind me and opened the closet door. Everyone roared with laughter, 
And in typical New York fashion, my tip jar filled with $100 in 60 seconds. Because I had worked my way through university as a Russian translator for various heads of state and other political and corporate VIPs, I was often asked to take care of the high-profile clients while I was a cater waiter. I was Happy Rockefeller's personal waiter at a wedding she hosted at the Rockefeller Estate in Westchester County. The boss spent 20 minutes warning me how difficult she was. But I like strong women, and I instantly liked her. She reminded me of my mom, and she actually saved my ass that day. At one point during the meal, between the appetizer and the main course, there was a very long wait. Too long. We were sweaty, bored, and tired of standing out in an open field on a hot summer day in our black tuxedos. So, I figured I could take advantage of my status as the hostess's waiter and shake things up a bit. I told the head waiter, um, I'm sorry, but happy isn't very happy. Honestly, I think I just wanted to hear myself say that sentence out loud. It tickled my love of simple limericks, childish rhymes, and alliterations. She is wondering what is taking so long with the next course. Big mistake. Next thing I knew, the head chef and the owner of the company ran up to Happy in total panic and asked her what was wrong. Meanwhile, I'm thinking to myself, oh God, I am never going to work in this town again. Happy looked momentarily confused, but once she saw the look of panic on my face, she immediately grasped the situation, gave me a wily smile, and told my boss, oh, just hurry up. When I went to refill her iced tea and say thank you, she pinched the cuff of my tuxedo, pulling me down to bring my ear a little closer, and in her raspy whisper said, You owe me, but don't worry about it, dear. Just keep that iced tea coming and we'll get along just fine. The medication we were all on was really taking its toll. Our doctors tried to encourage us by telling us it would get better, but it was hard to believe them. The only thing we knew for sure was that we were basically pharmaceutical guinea pigs. While I had been living in Germany, American activists had fought hard to win their first major legislative victory, changing the laws allowing medication for terminally ill patients to be released earlier. So, in all honesty, though we were miserable, we had quite literally asked for this. After a few months, I told Dr. Torres, Listen, I don't mean to be a drama queen, but I have to tell you the truth. If this is the quality of life I can expect on these meds, then no thank you. I can't live like this. I don't want to live like this for the rest of my life. It's just not worth it. Dr. Torres told me most of his patients had had the same conversation with him, but he assured us the next generation of medication would be on the market within a year at the most, and it would be much, much easier to take. We only had to hold on a few more months. I developed an I only need to get through this one minute at a time attitude. Slowly, it became an hour at a time, then a day at a time. I realized I was making progress when I actually went an entire day without thinking, I can't do this, I can't live like this. Then it stretched to a few days and finally weeks. When I eventually went an entire month without those fatalistic thoughts, I knew I was going to survive. But the horrible side effects the constant deathbed goodbyes and the never-ending string of funerals were not the only reminders of AIDS. Every time I went to the catering company in the West Village to pick up my check, I climbed the stairs out of the subway on 14th Street and saw St. Vincent's Hospital and thought to myself, that's where I'm going to die in the next few months. 
I also discovered a couple of tricks to help with the side effects. Heavy workouts, coupled with energetic aerobics and huge volumes of sweat, went a long way to helping me metabolize my meds. And as an added benefit, I was rapidly bulking up quite a bit. The second trick was something I was initially very reluctant to try. Methamphetamine. A banker I dated for a short time kept trying to convince me it would cut the side effects, so I eventually tried it. In small doses, the high was surprisingly light. And not only was I no longer tired, but my stomach problems completely disappeared. For the next decade, I would put a very small amount of crystal meth in my morning and afternoon coffees to enable me to get through the day. I soon discovered I was not the only one doing this. I landed a gig as a VIP waiter at Christie's Auction House, which was a cool full circle thing for me as my very first job at the age of 10 had been sweeping the floor at my dad's art gallery for 50 cents an hour. This job had the added benefit of allowing me to peruse some of the finest art collections in the world in complete privacy. My favorite period of art is 19th century Impressionism, especially Marc Chagall and Claude Monet. I was thrilled when Ambassador Loeb's famous collection of French Impressionists came up for auction and raised a staggering $92.8 million. Each day after work, I could leisurely enjoy long, detailed personal viewings of some of my favorite works of art. I was in heaven. I was also the personal waiter in a private dining room for Steve Wynn and his family when he attempted to buy one of the paintings from Monet's Iris Mauve series. In spite of being outbid, he still gave me a $5,000 tip. It was split between all the waiters and made me the man of the hour by basically doubling everyone's take-home that night. But by far the most memorable, hell I go so far as to say life-altering gig, was being Princess Diana's personal waiter for her famous dress auction at Christie's, only two months before her tragic death. She raised $3.25 million, but much more importantly, she made dramatic strides in raising America's awareness of HIV-AIDS. In spite of the fact that she had declined the offer of her personal waiter, I was still instructed to trail as close to her as I could in case she or her escort needed anything. I stayed beside her for some four hours. God, she was amazing. She greeted each and every one of her countless thousands of admirers with that mesmerizing smile of hers. She didn't so much as take a single sip of the mimosa I brought her. She just held it in her left hand like a prop the entire time while never dropping her charm or showing any irritation. I think this was her way of maintaining at least one very small part of herself to herself, while the throngs absolutely mobbed her. After a couple of hours, she finally shook the last hand in the vast ballroom of admirers. She turned to leave, and through the open door, she saw another room with a crowd almost as big as the one she had just cleared. For the slightest blink of an eye, I saw a little exasperation in her face. Then she took a breath, the twinkle returned to her stunning blue eyes, and she dove into the crowd, shaking every hand and answering every call. Princess Diana, the people's princess, was the world's most famous and beloved person in the last decade of the 20th century. Everyone adored her. But to us, she was so much more than just literati. She was our patron saint, and we worshipped her. 
When Princess Diana picked up and cuddled that AIDS baby in the Harlem hospital a few months earlier, you could have heard the world's collective gasp. But it changed the world for us. Those pictures were on the front page of every newspaper in America and around the world the next day. For days, we all proudly showed each other the same pictures over and over again. It was all any of us could talk about. With one simple gesture of kindness, compassion, and love, Princess Diana somehow jolted the world's consciousness. Suddenly, we were no longer evil, or dirty, or disgusting. And Americans finally realized we were just people, suffering, and in desperate need of kindness and care. With her gorgeous smile and loving compassion, Princess Diana transformed the world for us, and I will always love her for it. My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this day.